Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode 159. And today in the show, we are joined by one of the most successful DIY deer hunters in my home state of Michigan and across the country, John Eberhardt. And in this episode, we dive deeper than ever into his secrets for hunting tough-to-kill big bucks. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we've got a repeat guest, John Eberhart. And you probably heard me say it before, you'll hear me say it again later in this interview, but John was one of the most influential people in my evolution as a deer hunter. About a decade ago, I read his book, Precision Bowhunting, and it completely turned how I hunt and how I think about hunting upside down. From that point forward, my level of success has increased exponentially. So if you are not familiar with John, he's an outdoor writer, frequently published in outlets like Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine, and he's the author of three books, including the aforementioned Precision Bowhunting, uh, bow hunting, I think it was bow hunting pressured whitetails and bow hunting whitetails the Eberhardt way. And John specializes in sharing tactics and strategies for hunting mature whitetail bucks in heavily pressured areas. You know, these types of places where deer are particularly spooky and hard to hunt because of the constant presence of other hunters. And if you hunt in an area like this, John's advice is golden. But even if you hunt in a less hunted area, the level of detail and focus that John puts into his hunting and tactics, it can be applied just as successfully and probably probably even more so in lesser pressured regions. I've always said that if you can find success in a heavily pressured hunting area and perfect the tactics for those deer and then apply those tactics to lesser hunted areas, you know, you, you're just going to be an absolute terror to those unexpected deer. So today that's exactly what we're going to try to do. We're going to arm you with the strategies and tactics to finally wrap a tag around the biggest, baddest, oldest buck in your area, whether that's in Iowa or Michigan or Georgia or Indiana or anywhere in between. And if you haven't heard our first episode with John, I would highly recommend you listen to that one too. It's episode number 62, I believe, and we cover a lot of great material in that discussion. And today, though, we try to head into new territory. We discuss some very different details and subjects and then dive into specific examples of some of John's hunts to illustrate the concepts that led to his success. So that's the plan for today. I'm excited about this one. It is a really, really good episode, I think, in my uh 
possibly biased opinion. But before we get to that, uh, we do not have my co-host Dan along with us for this one. So in this little extra time we have, I want to give you a bit of homework to take care of after you listen to this one. Um, on this same day that we published the episode you're listening to right now, I also published a new episode of my other podcast, the 100% Wild Podcast. And that episode is a particularly interesting one as well, as it features Mark Drury. You know, we all know Mark Drury, the mad scientist of Drury Outdoors, and it features Mark discussing aggressive hunting tactics for mature bucks, including an in-depth analysis of his hunt and thought process while targeting a giant buck in 2016. And I think this conversation with Mark on the 100% Wild Podcast and the conversation you're going to hear today with John, they kind of provide an interesting illustration of how different tactics and philosophies can work in different areas and circumstances. I mean, both Mark and John have had a tremendous level of success, and they both put in a ton of work into those hunting efforts. You know, I admire and respect both of these guys and have learned so much from the two of them. But I bring this up because I think it's important for for all of us hunters, really, to open our minds to as many different concepts and ideas as possible. You know, whether it be from someone like Mark hunting a carefully managed farm in Iowa or from someone like John hunting small public and private pieces in Michigan, taking all these things into, you know, taking them all in and filtering through these new ideas to find what sticks, what doesn't, and what could be applied to your own situation where you hunt. Um, you know, if you listen to both of these conversations, I think you're going to hear some very different ideas, but you're also going to notice some underlying currents of consistency, despite those very different circumstances. And that that's pretty interesting to me. I'd encourage you to to chew on those differences and similarities. And I think if you do that, you're going to find a few things you can apply to your own hunting style and circumstances and methodology. I think it's safe to say that we all can grow as hunters, no, no doubt about that. And I think it's important that we not get too locked into only considering and hearing advice from people just like us. You know, new and different perspectives are so key. And that's I think that's true in life and in hunting. But when it comes to deer hunting, opening yourself to these new ideas and then properly filtering and thinking about how they may or may not apply to your own hunting, that's one of the very most important skills that you can apply to improve your success in the field. So all this is to say, when you finish this one, go download episode number 41 of the 100% Wild Podcast with Mark Drury. Compare and contrast these ideas, do some thinking, and I bet you'll find some ideas from both of these talks that can help you this upcoming season. I know I certainly have. So with that long and winding introduction out of the way, let's take a quick break to thank our partners at Sitka Gear. And today we've got an interesting Sitka story from our producer, Spencer Newharth, as he throws things back to a turkey hunt of his from this past spring. For this week's Sitka story, I'm going to talk about my final turkey hunt of this last spring that took place in the last week of April in South Dakota's Black Hills. Now the Black Hills are known for a couple things, uh, one of them being their Merriam's turkeys, uh, another one being their very volatile weather. And the reason for that is... They have a total mix of, of different climates, uh, like they have the subarctic climate in one area, like that of Alaska, and then they have a subtropic climate in another area, like that of Florida. So planning a hunt there can be very difficult. I went out there uh, scouting the day before, and it was like mid-70s, uh, beautiful weather. And the following day, we got about 8 inches of snow, and the weather, or the temperature was down in the teens. So it totally changed up what the turkeys were doing. 
and it totally changed up what I was doing. Now on that hunt, I was really struggling to not only find birds, uh, but even get an idea of where they were at. All my scouting was thrown out the window because of the blizzard and, and the birds were now in survival mode. So rather than making your typical turkey setups and calling them in, um, I had to just go after them and, and put a lot of miles on my boots that day, hoping to just come across flocks of birds. And that finally happened in the late afternoon when I cut a tracks that were crossing a snowy gravel road. And so the tracks were pretty small and I followed them with hopes that it was at least a jake. And when I got up on the tracks, uh, I was bummed to find that it was a hen until that hen turned and showed me that she had a beard. Now in South Dakota, it's legal to take any bearded turkey uh, with a male turkey tag. And so I was really excited, shouldered my gun, and dropped her with one concluding shot. Now on that hunt, I was wearing Sitka's Stratus system, which worked out really well because the day before when I was scouting, it was perfect as a standalone setup. And the following day, when the blizzard came, I was able to layer with it and keep on hunting. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, here with us now on the line is John Eberhart. Thanks for joining us back on the show again, John. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate the offer to come on the show. You guys have a very popular show, and... Uh... Definitely looking forward to it. I appreciate it. I, um, you know, we were just talking a second ago before we started recording, and I've said this on the podcast several times in the past, but um, not to um, to build you up too much. But you really are one of the most influential people on my hunting journey. Um, your books early on um, really kind of helped shape my focus areas and, and things that really took me from that guy who could maybe shoot a four corn buck to a guy that could maybe shoot a mature buck. So I, I got to thank you for that. And then, uh, I just gotta say I'm excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I, I really appreciate it. That's always been my goal is to help uh, hunters be more successful because if you're a passionate deer hunter and you're successful at it, killing mature bucks, it, it kind of almost changes your life, how you interact with people how other hunters interact with you, oh, yeah. how you deal with your family during deer season. It's just a life-changing experience. It def- definitely is, and our, and our wives might say a consuming life experience as well. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's all yeah, good, Yeah, that's right? possible. Yeah, yeah. So, so we had you on the podcast, I think it was two years ago now. I can't believe it's been that long ago. Um, yeah. But for those, you know, we, we introduced you before we got you on, but just for those who aren't familiar, can you give us like the John Eberhart 101? Like how would you introduce yourself to, to other deer hunters? Uh, I'd probably have to give myself a little bit of a bio, like when I'm doing seminars in the Midwest at expos. Um, I'm 66. I've been bow hunting 53 years. I've got 30 bucks in the Michigan record book with a bow. Uh, that's off 19 different properties, public land and knock on doors exclusively. No leases, don't own anything, don't hunt over bait. And I've taken... 21 out-of-state trips, and I've killed 19 bucks on those, P&Y bucks on those trips. Wow. And those came off 13 different properties in five different states. I love the fact that you've got all the data. You, you quantify it very well. It's awesome. Most people don't keep track of that, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's really interesting to hear that, and the numbers are impressive, no doubt about that. Well, I'm, thank you. I'm curious. You weren't always John Eberhardt, the big buck 
Slayer, though, I'm sure. Like, what was that evolution like for you when you were just getting into it? Because I know, you know, early on, I think I remember chatting with you once and you said you, you first really got into archery and then slowly made your way into hunting deer and then eventually older deer. Um, but what was that like for you? Was that really challenging? And, and at what point did that light switch flip where you started being able to kill these these older, bigger deer? I, I've always been a person that likes to be challenged. I do a lot of different things. I fish, I play pool, I golf, I do a lot of different things. And uh, when I got into bow hunting, I, you know, obviously back then I had no mentors. I had nobody in my family hunted, so I took it on by myself. And, uh, you know, I just started off trying to shoot anything. And typically, you know, I shot a couple fawns, and I'm going back into the early 60s, and shot a you know, then it does, and then it got to the point where I kind of targeted subordinate year-and-a-half-old bucks and was getting pretty good at that. And, and it was just a succession. The, the better the better I got and the more adept I became, the higher I set my goals. And it got to the point where in the mid-'70s, um, I was pretty good at killing mature bucks in the areas that I was hunting. So, um, and back then, Michigan, I live in Michigan, and it had a million gun hunters, and there was no QDM. There was no, you know, everybody killed anything that had legal three-inch spikes. So, you know, two-and-a-half-year-old bucks were rare. Three-and-a-half-year-olds were almost non-existent. So uh, it wasn't until probably the mid-'80s into the early-'90s when a lot of people started managing and passing up bucks that I really started totally concentrating on three and a half and four and a half and year old and older bucks and uh became very proficient at that i didn't read anything anybody else wrote uh, i just did everything on my own i still to this day i've never read anybody's books i don't read hunting articles i don't watch tv shows hmm. i don't know who most hunting personalities are and it's just all been kind of self-taught and uh, it's just been a competitive uh, deal with me. I just like to compete with myself and keep pushing myself to do the best I can do. Yeah, and that's kind of where it's went. So I think something you said there is is a good point to emphasize for people. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like you started hunting in the '60s, and it wasn't until the mid '80s that you were consistently killing mature bucks. And, and, and by bringing that up, I just I mean to point out that it takes time, right? It's not something that can just happen. You you start hunting, and right away you're killing mature bucks, right? It takes time to to get it to depends. that point. It Mark, it totally depends on your situation. Nowadays, with the high end leases and managed properties, you know, you know, TV guys, their wives can, you know because they're hunting such exclusive properties with no competition, you know, their kids and wives go out and start killing monster bucks immediately because they're hunting property with no competition. So I worked, I, you know, I hunted in areas, public lands and knock on doors for free permission properties. I always had competition. So I was working to separate myself from the other hunters. So I was killing even in the mid, mid to late seventies, I was killing the biggest bucks the area had to offer, which was typically a two and a half year old, you know, a 14, 16 inch, eight, eight or ten point Mm -hmm. um but then as time progressed and people started passing up up bucks on regular hunting properties you know 10 acre 20 acre 40 acre parcels and public lands then i started killing three and a half and four and a half year olds because they existed where i was hunting uh in the 70s they rarely existed because there's just so many gun hunters they just kept everything mowed down um so so i I guess I progressed 
to be proficient at killing mature bucks because of where I hunted. Today is different. You know, if somebody buys a big, leases a big piece of property and micromanages it, you know, they can go out and kill mature bucks relatively quickly because it doesn't take a lot of experience and knowledge because there's a lot of mature bucks in the area because they mm-hmm. don't have any competition. So, right, a, so that needs to be situation. added. Like the TV guys, for instance. Most TV guys, uh, if they had to hunt in a pressured area, they wouldn't have a clue where to start. Right. Very, very different circumstances, that's for sure. Totally, yes. So, okay. So then what about this? For someone that's in a similar situation to you that just hunts private land by permission or public, do you think it's easier or harder now for someone today in that situation versus, you know, in the 90s, maybe 20 years ago? Uh, harder or easier to kill deer or harder or easier to kill mature deer? To kill mature deer in the same types of circumstances that you're talking about. Uh, I think it's actually easier. I think it's easier nowadays because I don't care where you're at in this country anymore. Uh, even, you know, whether you're in West Virginia or Pennsylvania or Michigan or New York where there's extreme hunting pressure, there's a there's a higher percentage of hunters now that are not happy shooting year-and-a-half-old bucks. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them will shoot two-and-a-half-year-old bucks, and some of them will even pass up two-and-a-half and kill three-and-a-half. So there are more bucks, even on public lands, that are surviving to two and a half, three and a half, and even maybe four and a half years old than there were back in the 60s and the 70s when they just didn't. On heavily hunted public lands, they just didn't exist because everybody was trying to kill any legal antlered buck. Yeah. What do you see in regards to pressure increasing in that time frame from like the 90s till now on private and public? I mean, I feel like the narrative a lot of times is that there's more and more people trying to get access on fewer and fewer properties um, and maybe the same on public. Do you th- do you, have you seen that to be the case in your own hunting, or, or what do you think? Uh, yeah, and I also see a lot of people just giving up because there's so much emphasis now on trophy bucks, and so many people now are, are buying up properties or leasing large parcels of properties, keeping everybody off. Uh, it's, it's extremely hard to get hunting permission anymore. So, you know, it's pushing people to public lands and some public lands, like in southern Michigan, for instance, where there's ag and a lot of huge pop general population. There's so much hunting pressure that people hunt there a few times, and, and a lot of people just, if they're not that passionate about it, they just opt out of hunting altogether. Our our gun hunting numbers in Michigan have went from a million back in the 70s to like 700,000 now, so the gun hunting the gun hunting numbers have dwindled, and uh, archery numbers have came up, though, and especially now that a lot of gun hunters are converting to crossbows. What's the latest number you've seen there for archery hunters in Michigan? About 320,000. There's a lot of competition in the woods out there for us, isn't there? <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Keep, keeps us on our toes, I guess. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and that's happening kind of everywhere, I think. You know, I've last couple of few years i've struggled getting a permit for kansas because kansas now allows full inclusion crossbow hunters to apply for the same archery tags as a as a bow hunter so uh, they didn't raise the amount of uh, permits available but the a number of applications coming in are a lot higher so your odds of getting drawn are like a lot smaller yeah yeah i actually um was expecting to draw my Iowa tag this year, and I got with the number of points I had, I'd been able to draw this tag in the past twice. So I thought this would be, you know, a gimme this year, but uh, did not get it this year. So I think, like you said, the 
there's more non-residents going to some of these places now than ever probably and more like you said the crossbow influx and i mean i think it's a good thing that people are given you know archery hunting a shot and experiencing you know how much fun it is but it does make for some challenges too uh yeah definitely and i i believe i was probably one of the few states that has not allowed full inclusion in crossbow yet oh, no? i don't think they have yet one of the very few. Hmm. I may be mistaken, but I don't think they have. Okay. So but most areas in Iowa, it does take three preference points to get drawn, so you get drawn every four years. Yeah, it's it's definitely one of those spots that you need to um, be patient, that's for sure. Right. So, yes. <laughs> very, very true. For sure. So, so before we go any further, um, and we're going to go down all sorts of wormholes here, John, because I've got about 72 different questions I'd like to ask you about, and I'm going to pepper you with everything I can possibly think of here. <laughs> Before we get to that, though, um, I, I got wind of the fact that you've got a new project going on, um, kind of related to some of the things we're going to be talking about here today. Can you kind of fill us in on that real quick? Uh, yes, I can. I'm starting a new venture. It's called Eberhardt's Whitetail Workshops, and I'm also scouting properties, travel scouting to scout properties. And kind of what's different about what I'm doing, you know, there's a lot of guys that do land management scouting for people, tell them where to hinge cut and put food plots and put windrows and berms to funnel deer and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, they're they're speaking to a very limited audience of people that own and control their own property. You know, what I'm doing is whether you hunt public land or 10 acres or uh, you've you own 40 acres or you lease 100 acres, doesn't matter what your situation, or you're a strictly a travel hunter, you travel out of state a lot. No matter the situation, my workshops are designed to teach people how to actually hunt. In other words, um, it's a two, they're going to be two-day events. One's going to be in field on a piece of property. I have free permission to hunt. It's 170 acres, but it's only 37 acres of huntable land. The rest is in crops. And I've hunted it for nine years, and I've taken five five buck bucks off it. And there's two other guys that hunt the same property, and they've hunted it for 20-plus years, and they've never taken a buck buck off it. Wow. So I've got 14 locations on this property. And basically, I'm going to walk everybody on the in field day through the locations and show them how I set up a location, why this location may only have one shooting lane, why this location is strictly a morning spot, this one's strictly an evening spot, this one's strictly a rut spot, why this entry route and this exit route per location, because a lot of them have different entry and exit routes. And basically, you know, showing people how I set stuff up and and I think that would help people a lot more than going out and scouting their property. Because when you scout somebody's property, you are basically telling them what or showing them what they may need to do on that particular given piece of property. Whereas when you look at a situation where you're looking at 14 different locations and each location is set up for a very specific reason and time of season and time of day, uh, you get a lot better overview of what to look for no matter where you go hunting. And that's really important because a lot of people don't just hunt one property. They hunt multiple properties or they travel hunt. And it's really nice to be able to go out of state and, you know, be able to set up on the best the best bucks in the area and have an awesome chance at killing one in a one-week period. Yeah, definitely. So these workshops, when are they starting? Where are they at? How do we how do we learn more? Uh, on my website, I have a web. I just revamped my website 
cost me a lot of money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's uh, the website is www.deer-john.net or www.eberhartswhitetailworkshops.com or if anybody just Googled my name, I'm sure that they would come up. Okay. And uh, the website goes. It, the website has the workshops, ex- explanation of what the workshops are, uh, and then the scouting properties. It has testimonials from industry industry uh, professionals. Like I've got testimonials on there from the executive director of the Pope and Young Club, uh, the editor in chief Dan Schmidt of deer, deer Hunting, Tom Nelson from American Archer, and these are all very good awesome uh, testimonials uh, that I'm pretty proud that they gave them to me. And I got a ton of hunter testimonials from people that have read my books or watched my instructional DVDs over the years. That's great. Great. And and are these coming up this summer or this fall? Or? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the, we're gonna, I'm going to have four of them. And I, not we. This is totally a me deal. Uh, the first one's going to be July 29-30. These are Saturdays, Sundays. Uh, second one will be July 12, 13, or I'm sorry, August, August 12 and 13. And then the third one will be August 19 and 20. And the fourth one will be September 23rd and 24th. So I've got four of them this year, and then I will probably have more next year and during postseason. Uh, which would be February, February, March, and April. Sounds sounds like an awesome event. And are these taking place somewhere in Mid Michigan? Is that right? Yes. The yeah, actually, uh, the thirty-seven acres is in Edmore, and then the second day, which will be the seminar day, is going to be at Jay's Sporting Goods, which is in Clare, Michigan, which is the largest sporting goods store in the state, and they're going to be giving all the attendees a fifteen percent discount. Uh, voucher for anything they buy over $50. And they actually have a seminar room with nice office chairs. So it'll be a very comfortable seminar. And I'll go over tons of stuff. I'll have all my scouting gear and I'll have my, there's going to be a a big portion of this will be on scent control because I'm a huge, huge advocate of activated carbon and a total scent control regimen. I don't pay any attention to wind direction ever. Right. I remember we talked about that last time and that, that was definitely a, even a shocker for me, even though I've, I've read your work in the past. Um, you have, you've got a lot of confidence in your scent control. I don't get winded. I can have deer cross my entry routes, uh, have deer downwind. I have deer downwind me all the time because I hunt my locations based on the sign at the time. I don't wait for the proper wind. I spent years and years hunting the wind for 35 years seasons and there was certain rut phase locations I never got to hunt that strictly because on my days off work I didn't have the right wind direction and that's no longer the case if you can beat the wind you've made a big big huge difference in your hunting hunting success yeah yeah okay so so before we go too far down that road I want to rewind a little bit um you mentioned in your seminars you're going to be talking about some of your scouting gear and some different things like that. And right now when we're talking, right, this is early July. Um, so at this time of year, John, what are you doing, if anything, to get ready for the upcoming season? Is there 
are you still doing any scouting? You're still doing any stand prep, or is all that done in the postseason already? That is done. Ninety uh, percent of all my scouting and location preparation is done by the end of April, and that's no different this year. Uh, so basically, on this property that we're going to be doing these workshops on, I'm going to totally trash them out. Uh, it's going to definitely affect my early season hunting, but I'm willing to give that up. So to answer your question, uh, all my locations are prepped. I'm ready for season. I'm always ready for season by the end of April. But I do what I call speed touring. In other words, I may go into season with, you know, on three different pieces of property, 30-plus locations prepared and ready to hunt. And I hunt out of a saddle, so I can hunt any one of them at any point in time. So let's say let's say 10 of those locations are early season locations. In other words, they are, they are located where there may be an apple tree and a lot of perimeter security cover or a white oak tree, you know, with perimeter security cover and transition security cover from a bedding area to it. So just prior to season, usually after September 15th, because I know all the big bucks are rubbed out by usually the 5th of September up here in Michigan, all the bigger bucks, uh, so there's going to be buck sign. So after September 15th, I'll do a speed tour wearing my total stunt lock suit and boots and, uh, you know, carbon backpack if I'm carrying anything in a backpack. And I'll do a speed tour of all my early season locations, which are typically feeding locations in isolated feeding areas. And if I see that, obviously, if I prep something in postseason at an apple tree or white oak, I have no clue if it's going to have apples or acorns. So during the speed tour, I see if they do actually are producing master fruit. And if they are, by September 15th, they're going to have some semblance of buck sign around them in the form of rubs and typically apple trees. If they're dropping apples, they'll have scrapes. So I do a I do an early a preseason speed tour, but it's not a scouting tour. I'm not re-preparing any locations. I'm just checking them to see if they're going to be suitable for early season hunting locations. Okay. So can you elaborate on that a little bit? So when are you actually, is it like September 15th to September 18th or something? I mean, is there like a few-day time frame when you try and knock out all these speed tours? Or are you waiting on a specific set of conditions? Like, Do you wait for a windy day or a rainy day or anything that maybe lessens the impact you have? Is there anything as far as specifics when it comes to doing those speed tours? Man, Mark, I can tell you read my books. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I definitely do. I wait. Obviously, there's a two-week window in there because our season opens October 1. And if I can look forward on the weather and see that there's going to be a day that it's going to be raining, a hard rain, or a really windy day, yes, those are the days that I will do those speed tours because it rain or hard winds will not only dissipate your noise, it'll dissipate your any residual odor you might have left. Because a lot of times when you go in there and let's say you prepped a spot, you know, in April and it's at, a, at an apple tree, and, you know, there's there's typically something you may have to do, you know, some new growth that may be, you know, encumbering your shooting lane or something that you may have to trim out. So so it, it knocks your noise down, and if you do leave any trace elements of human odor, uh, it will also, you know, knock that down as well. Would it be safe to say that most of your early season locations are also places that, are not going to require you go busting 
deep into like the core of a property through bedding Absolutely. areas? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, yes. I hunt within bedding areas. I think anybody that doesn't hunt within bedding areas, if they don't own a lot of piece, a lot of property, and the deer can leave their bedding area during the rough phases, which is usually gun seasons, and get shot on bordering property, I think people that don't hunt within their bedding areas and do it smartly are making a huge mistake. But no, I do not scout within my bedding areas during that speed tour. My bedding areas are all set up postseason, and I don't go in them until I have a bow in my hand and I'm actually physically hunting. Okay. Yeah, that, that's what I assumed. It seems like if you're going to do these very last-minute scouting sessions, it has to be precision, it has to be low impact, um, because to your point, anything, at least you know, from my perspective, I've always thought you know, after the beginning of September, I'm so, so paranoid about any type of impact within those areas. Um, so you got to be smart about it, right? Absolutely. In Michigan, and I've shot bucks in Missouri and Kansas and Iowa and uh, Ohio, and in Michigan, anytime you walk, even preseason, on the property, it's like walking on eggshells. It takes such a minute amount of anything to turn a mature buck nocturnal because there's so many hunters hunting them during deer season, and they don't know you're scouting. They don't know you're just out there looking. They view your your presence as a threat to their existence, right. and they turn nocturnal until, obviously, their testosterone, testosterone levels rise, and they start thinking with other body parts than their brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's when your opportunities come. And I, that's when I hunt within the bedding areas, is during the pre-rut and rut phase locate, rut phase time frames i don't hunt them until the rough phases yeah that that was one of, that's one of the key things that was transformational for me as a hunter is just understanding the proper timing like growing up as a hunter i just hunted whenever wherever and i think it was really your book precision bow hunting that was one of the first things that really locked this or knocked this into my head that you have to have certain places for certain times of the year and you don't invade into you know, you're not pushing into your pre-rut places on october 1st and you're not going to be hunting necessarily where you want to hunt November 15th on October 15th. And you need to have that timing right. And that's such a key concept, I think, when you're trying to tire out those older bucks, especially in high-pressure areas. Uh, absolutely. Because a lot of people don't don't even consider, well, okay, I'm going to go hunting in this spot. Uh, it's October 10th. And you know what? I hunted here. I saw some does. I didn't. I didn't get a shot. The big buck didn't come in. I'll go on it again. Hey, at least I saw some does. And then the next time they see, you know, 30% fewer does. You know, they saw four the first time. Now they see three. And then they hunt it again, and they see one. And then they hunt it again, and they see zero. What people don't understand is all buck activity during the rut phases revolves around doe activity at that location. So if you're hunting a destination location and you're, you know, prior to the rut phases, and you are altering doe traffic because you're hunting it, and now all of a sudden there's no doe traffic, well, then you quit hunting it. Well, then you go back to hunt it during rut phases. You've totally altered that doe traffic away from that location during daylight hours. So obviously, if the buck traffic is revolving around the doe traffic, there's no reason for them to be there because there's no does there during daylight hours. Mm-hmm. It's such a simple analogy. Yeah. But to your point, so many people are guilty of not doing that because they want to hunt, right? They want to go to their best spots, and they're excited at the beginning of the year, and they go all gung-ho into these areas, and uh, little do they know that they're ruining it before they even really had a good chance there. 
A- absolutely. And, and God, I hate to knock on the TV guys again, but when you watch the TV shows, all you know, they, oh, well, we got this plan for hunting during the October lull, you know, when nobody else is killing deer. Yeah, we know how to do that. Well, they're hunting micromanaged areas where there's no other hunting competition. Those deer, you know, they were, they have grown to maturity without having any hunter consequences. They don't target those bucks till they're four years old. So obviously their daylight movement habits have remained somewhat intact because when they've had any hunter interactions, it hasn't been any consequences for it. So, you know, those guys can kill bucks during that October lull because the mature bucks are not as fearful of human intrusions as they are in pressured areas. In pressured areas, everything matters. Everything has to be detail oriented. It's that important. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important for people when watching hunting TV, you know, Hey, it's all well and good. If you look at it as entertainment, it's fun. You know, you can see big deer and that's great, but realize that in many cases, these are just different circumstances than what you may or may not have. And, and just have realistic expectations based on that. And then also realize that how you hunt will have to be different if you don't have those same circumstances. And I think more and more people are starting to figure that out. Um, no but, um, but it's an important thing to just to always remind people because to your point earlier, when people start having this expectation that every time they hunt, they're supposed to see a trophy buck. If that's the expectation you go into your hunting season with and when the reality turns out to be very different from that, like you said, it can be pretty discouraging and, um, you're, this is supposed to be fun, you know? So I think if we go in there with realistic expectations based on our circumstances, based on where we're at, go out there and, and try to hunt the best you can, but have a good time with it and not get too worked up about the fact that you didn't kill the 200 inch or something. I mean, I think if we, if we go about it with a mindset like that, I think people are really going to enjoy this activity a whole lot more and not, uh, you know, not the other way. Uh, I, you couldn't have laid that out any better, Mark. That was absolutely perfect you know what i i actually look at a lot of the tv guys and uh, i look at where they're from and i don't know one that's from a state like a pa or a new york or a michigan or a west virginia that has any bucks in their record book in their home state they're killing lots of bucks in ohio or iowa and kansas and nebraska and you know the dakotas where it's relatively simple because there's so dang many of them and there's no hunting pressure, but they've got nothing in their credential background from their home state. So to me, unless you can kill mature bucks in a pressured state, um, I don't know, kill credentials don't don't really mean a whole lot to me. Uh, I think that's a pretty crude way of putting it, but it's a realistic way of putting it. And I love watching the TV shows. Yeah. But I, I, I take them with a grain of salt. And like, just like you said, they're, they're fun to watch, but those guys, I view them as entertainers, just yeah. like anything else. That's how they're making their living. They're entertaining hunters. Yeah. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Just different. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nope. So, okay. So speaking of intrusion though, right? If we're, if we're worried about our intrusion and the pressure we're putting on our deer, there probably are a lot of people, I'm, I'm guilty of this myself, actually. I still have some projects I'm doing in the woods. Um, so for people like me who are not as prepared as you were and had things done in April, if we're still hanging stands right now or maybe doing some quick scouting or something, how can we do that in as best a way as possible? What types of things should we be thinking about this time of year to keep that impact low and to also, you know, I guess, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say also is how do we keep it low, impact low, but then also what would you be doing in April? that we could be doing now in July, if you know what I mean? Well, 
you know, July, depends on the state. I know some states open in September 1st, some states open mid-September, you know, Michigan happens to be October 1. So even even right now, you've got, let's see, July, August in Michigan, you've got almost three months before season. So if, if you went out there and did a late, you know, Hail Mary, set a few stands, and you got them done by the end of July, you know, deer still have two months to calm down. Um, and go back on about their regular routines. That's the cool thing about postseason scouting. You can scout your property. You can scout properties every day from daylight till dark for a month straight. You can spook every deer in the area out of the out of the area, and it doesn't make any difference. They got six months to come back, and everything will be hunky dory as normal by the time season starts. Uh, but this time of year, when you go in and you scout. You're definitely making an influx of human activity. You're going to be spooking deer. You want to do it as scent-free as possible, which is impossible in this type of heat. You're, I don't even care if you're wearing all scent lock and, you know, you've got everything perfectly scent-free. You're still going to leave some human odor because you're going to be working on stuff. You're going to touch stuff, and you're going to sweat, and you're going to leave human, leave human odor. So this time of year, you can go in and prepare some stuff, and odds are it might not affect you in the early season, but, but one of the things I really hate doing is this time of year, everything's in full foliage, so when you go in and you prepare shooting lanes, you're making a major visual difference. So you're not only leaving a, a human intrusion, maybe a faint scent ribbon throughout the woods and wherever you're preparing a, loca- preparing a location, but you're also making a visual change. You know, most, most locations... You're cutting two, three, maybe even four shooting lanes if you're within any type of security cover. And so you're making visual changes, whereas during postseason, you know, you're cutting stuff where there's no foliage on it, and then everything greens up the same as it does as it comes into spring and summer. And there is no real visual change because everything is just happening at the same, you know, as everything grows. So... Um, but I, I would say, yeah, right now you could go out and it probably maybe wouldn't affect too much. It depends on the state and the area. Public lands, it, I don't know, public lands, I think they get pounded and definitely would. You know, the, the place I the place I hunted opening morning for probably 20-plus years, there was a minimum, an absolute minimum of 30 bow hunters and trees in the section, which is 640 acres, on opening day. Wow. Yeah, that you say wow, but in Zone Three in Michigan, yeah, that's not that abnormal. That's yeah. relatively normal. And and you look at states like, like uh, West Virginia, Virginia, Pennsylvania, New York, Massachusetts. That that's a pretty common number. People, people might not think that, but when you look at you know you got. 640 acres, and you got 20-acre parcels, 10-acre parcels, 40-acre parcels, 80-acre parcels. You put two or three hundreds on each one of those, that adds up real quick. It's true. It's true. I, I hate to think about that in my in my little sections, but I, as I sit and I start thinking about, okay, such and such would probably be hunting, and so and so would likely be hunting in this section. You're right. It, it adds up quick. Yeah. And and obviously, opening morning, everybody wants to be in the woods. You know, they've been waiting all year for that. Right. And that's a that's another thing. You know, I have a ton of hobbies. I I think people that just dwell one hundred percent of their life on deer hunting and trying to kill them in your buck every year, to actually overthink things. It's it's you have to be very detail oriented and very cautious of everything you do. But uh, once you get to a certain point, 
you tend not to overthink things. You just hunt smart, and then things come re- relatively consistently. And and uh, I don't know things. I, I, nowadays, I hunt less hours than I ever used to hunt back in the '70s and '80s, and I'm I'm far more consistently successful on mature bucks. I just hunt a lot smarter. Yeah, that that definitely seems to be a consistent uh, trait with those most successful hunters is they, they don't necessarily hunt harder, they hunt smarter. And if you can do that, that, that really is a, one of those major like thresholds. Once you kind of pass through that in your journey as a hunter, I feel like you start seeing significant differences. So, uh, all right, now let's, let's go back to, we're doing some summer scouting maybe. And we found a location that looks, that looks good. Maybe we'll just say for early season, I see a spot. This looks like a good early season spot to me. Um, you're there with me. Let's say you're walking the property with me. We say, "Hey, this is a good early season spot." Take me through your why. Thought. Why is it a? Why <laughs> would you think it's a good early season spot? Well, that was going to maybe be my question for you, but let's have, I'll, I'll throw a hypothetical. <laughs> okay. I'll throw a hypothetical situation out there, and let's just say this is a stand location that is easy to access. I'm not going to bump any deer when I'm trying to come in for an afternoon sit. I'm going to say there is an isolated food source that's within cover. Maybe like you mentioned earlier, a little apple tree. And um, the prevailing winds are likely going to, at that time of year, going to be coming from a bedding area that's not too far away, that's going to be coming towards me, so I can be, now, I, I worry about the wind, so that's something that would matter to me. Um, but, so that that's our high-level situation. We're standing in this area, we're looking around. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what's going through your mind when you're trying to choose that right tree. What does the right tree look like for you? What do you think about when choosing where your stand needs to be set up in a general area? Um, anything and everything related to that, I'm curious about. Okay, let's pretend you did, did find an apple tree. Cause you, an apple or, let's say, a white oak, which deer obviously prefer white oak acorns over red oak acorns. So either one of those two trees. Uh, if I back my career up 17 years before I learned how to properly care for and use Lock, which most people that do own Scentlock don't know how to properly care for it and use it. Um, but if that if that were the case and I did pay attention to wind like I used to, I would obviously want to set up on the downwind side of the actual destination location. Uh, me personally, I'm not the most phenomenal archer in the world. I'm a 12 to 18 yard guy. I like shots within 20 yards. So I would set up within 20 yards of the actual destination spot. I, I'm not that guy that, you know, if I see a scrape area, you know, I set up on a runway leading to it. I want to set up at the destination spot. I want that particular hunt to be the most potential possibilities possible. So I'm setting up at the destination spot. So if I'm going to set up in an apple tree where deer are going to come in, especially does and fawns and some ordinary bucks, they're they're probably going to feed at that location for five to ten minutes before before they move on and go to a, go someplace else. So, anytime you set up at a destination spot where deer will be lingering for a period of time, you have to set up. And because I hunt out of a, a sling, I set up on the back side of the tree. So I'm going to be on the downwind side if I'm paying attention to the wind. I'm going to be on the downwind side of the actual tree, and I'm going to be on the back side where the tree is going to be a blocker between me and the apple tree. Now that's a negative with a tree stand or a climber or a ladder stand, a conventional stand. You can't typically do that because with a sling, you can just swing around to the side of the tree when your shot opportunity comes and make the shot. So, but anyway, I'm going to be on the backside of the tree, peeking around the tree for 
you know, at the deer, and that way I'm not going to get picked. Anytime you're at a destination location and you're on a hang-on or you're at a ladder stand, you're typically hanging to the side of the tree where your shot is to your left if you're right-handed. So basically, your body figure is sticking out to the side of the tree. So you're a protrusion. So you're easy to pick, especially if the leaves are down. But if it's an early season location, leaves are probably going to be up, and you're probably going to have some background security cover. So that that's what I would do. And I have several locations prepared like that. You know, I'm not necessarily on the downwind side because I don't pay attention to wind. But anytime I'm hunting at a destination location, I always want to be on the backside of a tree where I've got it blocking me from the deer that are going to be lingering there. Because in Michigan, in pressured areas, deer are always looking around for people in trees. They're just always, the ears are moving, eyes are looking around. And anytime you got three or four deer there, going two fawns, maybe two does and two fawns, uh, your odds of getting picked sticking out on the side of a tree are real high. So, you know, I would suggest if you were a conventional tree stand hunter, you'd want to be up there a minimum of 20 feet, maybe 25, so you're kind of up out of their peripheral vision. The lower you are, the more apt you are to get picked. So then how does that factor into how much trimming you do? Are you the type that does not do a lot of trimming for lanes because you want to have as much cover in the tree, or do you want to make sure you're not going to miss a shot opportunity because of a limb? At a destination location, I'm going to prep one shooting lane, and it's going to be to the actual destination location, whether it be a primary scrape area underneath a white oak or at an apple tree. Now, I've got two apple trees on this property that my workshops are going to be held at where I've got single lanes cleared to the actual tree. And at one of them, which is my favorite tree on the entire property, I've killed two PNY bucks at this spot. I've raped half of the tree and the farmer allowed me to do that. In other words, I've got a big V cut out of the center of the tree because on the back side of the tree, from where I'm actually hunting, I'm hunting, I'm sitting, I'm hanging in my sling in a red oak, and it's about, I'd say, 14 yards from the base of the apple tree. But on the back side of the apple tree, there's a bunch of brush, and any time a mature buck comes into that apple tree, he comes through that heavy cover, and he just steps out, and he'll eat a few apples on the opposite side of the tree from where I'm sitting. And then he'll turn around and he'll exit back out that security cover. And he's coming in to check for does. And while he's there, he's just eating a couple apples. Mm -hmm. He doesn't linger like does and subordinate bucks do. Whereas when does and subordinate bucks come in, they will actually come over onto my side of the apple tree, which is much more open and it's kind of on a side hill slant. And they'll be totally exposed and they'll just walk around and eat apples for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before they leave. But the mature bucks always come in through this heavy security cover, eat a few apples. You know, they'll pop out on the back side, uh, just off that security cover, eat a few apples, and they'll turn around and go. So I had to physically clear out a huge portion of the tree so that I could shoot through the tree to the opposite side. Gotcha. But there's only, anytime I'm hunting a destination location, it's extremely rare that I have more than one shooting lane. You know, and it's focused right on the destination spot. Now, if I'm setting up a, a destination spot, let's say at like a scrape area, I will, even though I'm not paying attention to wind, I'm not fearful of getting winded, I may set a tree up on the 
typically downwind side of the prevailing winds, which is northwest winds usually, so I'm on the southeast side of the scrape. Because there's been several times when I've had deer mature bucks come downwind of the scrapes and scent check it with the wind as opposed to actually physically going to the scrapes and working the scrapes and working the licking branches. So I'll set up maybe 20 yards from the scrapes where I got a chip shot to the scrapes, but if the deer comes in and checks from 20 to 40 yards downwind, I've also got a shot at that. Now what about a location where you're expecting, where it's not necessarily a destination, but it's a, a spot where you're catching travel? So let's maybe hypothetically a, a rut-type stand site where you're hunting maybe some kind of terrain funnel or a pinch point where you're just expecting deer to be coming through, and there might be a couple different places they're coming from. Will you open up uh, multiple other shooting lanes in that case, or is it still as minimal as possible? Uh, typically, when I'm hunting a transition zone, that's what you're talking about from, let's say, a bedding to a feeding area during the early season or from a bedding area to a bedding area during the rut phases when bucks are sent checking for estrus does in the middle of the day. Uh, typically, in a pinch point, I will just have a shooting lane, eight, two shooting lanes, one each direction to the outside edge of the pinch point as far as I can shoot to either side. There's no reason to have more than that because the deer are going through that pinch point either on my right or to my left. Okay. So there's no reason to have more than two two shooting lanes. Now, if I'm setting up a location within a bedding area during postseason, within a bedding area, I can have as many as five shooting lanes. They're like spokes on a tire, because it during the rough phases when does are chasing chasing estrus does, you know, they can come from any direction and they can go by at any time at any and at any place. There is no rhyme or reason. There is no routine. You know, people that sit on the edge of perimeters of bedding areas and listen to bucks chasing inside bedding areas while they're sitting on a perimeter know exactly what I'm talking about. When you're within the perimeter, when you're within the bedding area, you have to have multiple lanes so that you don't miss opportunities because you're not going to be hunting in there more than two or three times during the course of the season during the rough phases. So, if an opportunity arises, you want it. You want to capitalize on it. So you have multiple run, multiple shooting lanes, as many as five. That makes sense. Okay, now, real quick, before we get to my next question for John, we need to pause briefly to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties for their ongoing support of this podcast. And for this week's Whitetail Wisdom segment, our producer, Spencer, has brought in another Michigan hunter and a Whitetail Properties land specialist, Tony Hansen. And Tony has a few thoughts to share here on topics very similar to that which we've been talking about with John. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tony Hansen, a land specialist out of Michigan, and Tony is going to be telling us about what factors matter most on a property in high-pressure areas. Well, to me, it's it's variety. So even though, I, I mean, I own and kind of hunt a lot of small properties, you you got to look for a mix of things. You need You need food for sure, but you need cover probably even more. So, you know, I need to have all of the pieces that the deer needs because I don't want them traveling very far and I don't want them to feel like they have to travel very far. Um, because you know, especially during our gun season when there's, you know, nearly a million guys out there, if a a deer moves, it's, it's got a real good chance of getting shot. So I try to find properties that have everything you need right there. And yes, neighborhood matters, but it doesn't matter quite as much as what you can, you know, do right there on your own property. So you want to make sure that you have food and cover and, um, you know, bedding areas, security places and sanctuaries are a big thing uh, with me too. So I look for a lot of variety in the, in the property. 
If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tony currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. So I want to hear a little bit more about your bedding area stance sites, but, but before we get that, maybe we can work through it to that sequentially. Can you give me an example of a few of your like ideal locations for, you know, we talked a couple examples for early season, like an oak tree or an apple tree, but are there any other early season locations that you would say just high level generic this and that, and then could you move me through the season until we get to that rut bedding area stand site? Uh, yeah, uh, early season, it's, it's not extremely uncommon to find scrape areas in September. So if I'm out doing my speed touring and, uh, you know, I happen to go through, a lot of times I'll actually also look at my transition, my transition funnels, basically. And if there's scrape areas in, in a tight pinch point, you know, I'll, uh, those are spots where I'll hunt during the early season as well. So, but that's about it. Typically early season, if it's not a scrape area or, or white oak or an apple tree, I'm typically not hunting it. I, I key on some, you know, I key on destination areas. I don't hunt a lot. You know, I'll maybe hunt the first three or four days of season, and then I really slack off on my hunting. So I don't need a lot of early season locations to, to actually hunt. Now, I do have a, not one other spot that's um, it's on the edge of some timber, and there's about a 15-yard gap from the edge of the timber, and it's tall weeds. It's a buffer zone between the timber and a crop field. Now, the, in the edge of that timber is all red oaks. And, but there's no whites in the area, and they will they will eat red oak acorns if there are no whites, because if there's whites, they'll eat those first. So during the years that that crop field is in standing corn, deer will bed in the crop fields, or they'll bed back in the timber, and they'll transition back and forth, just you know because they got security cover from one spot to the next. So that's another spot that even though there's no scrape area, uh, the full the full tree line is red oak, so there's no. It's not really a destination area, but but typically there will be scrapes even prior to October 1st when they're dropping acorns. There will be scrapes along that timber line, and deer. I will put a motion camera, which I don't use motion cameras much in Michigan. And if I do happen to see something worth shooting, I will set up. It's strictly an evening spot. I can't hunt that spot in the morning. Um, I will I will hunt that spot. And I did kill a um, 22-inch wide 10-point there, 23-inch wide 10-point there two years ago. Wow. In early season. Does water factor into your early season strategy at all? Uh, it it used to. It, it depends on the area. You know, if I'm hunting an area that's pretty much devoid of water and I find a water source, yeah. Then it definitely factors into my into my my plan. But uh, the properties that I'm hunting now, one of them has a lot of swamp on it, so there's water everywhere. So water is not a factor. Uh, and the others the other spots got a creek running through it, so you know water is not a factor there. But uh, there has been periods of time in my hunting life because I've probably hunted 
50 to 70 different parcels of property uh, where there hasn't been any water to speak of. You know, the area has been pretty devoid of water, and if you find a water hole, it's a phenomenal spot to hunt. Um, in fact, I've actually made water holes before where they didn't exist because the area had no water. And as soon as you put something, put water there, you know, deer will come. It's They have to drink water. Do you find any difference in how deer um, prefer moving water versus standing water? Do you find that they tend to prefer like a pond or a water hole over a stream or does it not matter? Uh, I find that mature deer exclusively in pressured areas like to drink water wherever they have security cover. Matured bucks in pressured areas like to have security cover. I don't care what they're doing. I don't care if they're drinking, swimming, partying, laying on a tube. (laughs) They like security cover. That is an absolute critical must. So if they have have a a pond that has a 40-yard buffer of grass, Odds are they're not going to drink water there during daylight hours. It's going to be strictly during the security of darkness. Okay. Whereas if they have a little water mud puddle that's 100 yards off that pond and it's got security cover all around it and it's got security transition cover to it, that's where they will drink their water in the day if they're drinking it in daylight hours. Okay. So let's fast forward now from the early season to mid to late October. I know historically you tend to not hunt as much during the quote-unquote, October lull, um, is that still the case, uh, or are you starting to do a little more during that time period? Uh, that's It's still the case. I still hunt some secondary spots. Uh, you know, basically, they're spots where I'm not impeding or doing any intrusion close to any of my rut phase locations. As long as you can pick a, find secondary spots where you're not interrupting any deer activity, doe activity, or otherwise at your rut phase locations. It's okay to hunt during that lull period, um, but it's very rarely productive. I, I think, oh, I'm trying to remember. I've probably killed three bucks in my lifetime that made book in Michigan in, you know, mid-October. Okay. Now, out of 30, that's yeah. a pretty low number. <laughs> the odds aren't great. <laughs> now, yeah, I've killed, well, let me put that in perspective. I think I've killed five during the first three days that made book, three during the mid October time frame, and then the other 22 between Halloween and the 14th of November. So you got 22 in a two, basically a two week time frame, and only eight in the other month. Yeah. Yeah, stark, stark comparison, no doubt about that. Yeah. And um, I've done the statistics in all my books, and statistically, I don't, ma- I don't care what state you're hunting in, 60-plus percent of all trophy bucks entered in the PNY record book are taken during that state's rut phases. Yeah. You know, and every state has a different rut phase period, for pretty much, not every state, but when you get down south, some of them are in December and even January. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things get a little wonky down there. Yeah. Um, now, there are exceptions to the rule you just mentioned, which you have killed some bucks during mid-October specifically. I, I, I want to point out your recent success in 2015, just a few months after we talked last time on the podcast, you killed a great buck on October 18th. And I'm really curious to hear how that happened. How were you able to make the best of that tough time period? Well, that was actually at that... Uh location where I was talking about where I was hunting that red oak timberline 
and had that 15-foot weed buffer, and then there was standing corn. So basically what I did is I parked on the road. I walked through the standing corn because once I walked through the standing corn, I, if, you don't really spook much for deer when you're walking in standing corn. Even though deer are bedding in it, if you do happen to spook them, they just go off to the sides and go out into the corn. They don't leave the corn and go in the woods. They just go out and chill out and go back to their normal thing. So basically, I walked through the cornfield, and once I got through the cornfield, I've just got a, like I said, a 15-yard buffer of weeds. I just walked right to the tree and got up the tree. So I'm not really intruding on anything. And uh, that particular day, uh, there must have been an early estrus doe in the area. That, that's all. That's basically all I can say is because I saw this big buck back behind the timberline, probably 50 yards. The woods is relatively open, and then there's a big area of just really, really tall weeds, and that's where the deer. That's where deer bed as well as in the corn. And I saw this big buck come out of that weedy area and kind of cut sideways and go over into this this stand of pines that spruce trees that grow right down to the ground and it was like 50 yards away so obviously i didn't get a shot and uh he was over there i don't know probably half an hour later all of a sudden i seen this doe followed by two fawns come running out of that pine area made a big circle went back by the weeds turned and came and she ran right under my tree into the cornfield she ran right under my red oak right through the weed buffer right into the cornfield and the two fawns stood there. They just kind of, right at the tree line, they just kind of loitered. And they just kind of moved off to the side a little bit. And all of a sudden, I heard this grunting. And sure enough, here comes that big buck. And he followed her exactly on her exact route, nose to the ground. And when he got to the tree line, he was six yards from my tree, he stopped. He did not want to cross that 15-yard open buffer of weeds, of weeds he did not want to leave the timber and uh, he stopped now maybe she wasn't in heat i think if she would have been actually in heat she may have been close to it but i don't think she was actually in heat i think if she had been he would have followed her but he stopped there and he was broadside and because i hung out of that sling he was to my right and obviously with the sling your shots to your left i'm right-handed i had to lift my bow up over the sling lead strap and spin around and and shoot in an awkward position but i practiced that shot and i'm probably 28 feet up and i so i was not worried about him picking me at six yards his peripheral vision he'd had to look straight up to see me so i i flipped my bow up over the lead strap and i made that shot and he ran about 100 yards and what was kind of weird he ran out of sight and the two fawns ran after him when he ran back into the timber he didn't go into the weeds he ran off sideways into the timber and the fawns kind of took off after him which i thought was really strange i'd never seen that before and about 10 minutes later you know the two fawns came back you know probably looking for mom and one of the fawns the button buck fawn kept looking back kept looking back to where the the buck where i last saw the buck go and finally they went in, you know, into the corn after mom, but him looking back just kind of let me know that he had expired over there, but I still didn't look for him until the next morning and he was laying right there. Wow. So if I had to, if I had to drill down from what you said, if I had to drill down like the why behind why that worked out for your wife hunter there, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
But mm-hmm. would it be safe to say that you chose to hunt there that day because A, it was a transition area from bed to feed, B, it was low impact. Like you could go in there and you weren't going to mess up anything because you had that great access to the corn. You could pop right into the tree. So it was a safe place for you to go at a time frame when you weren't really expecting great action, but you're in an easy-to-get-to place where there's the potential for that bed-to-feed transition. Is that at a high level correct? You said that 100% perfectly, yes. Okay. Perfect. 100% spot on. Low-impact <laughs> entry uh, didn't affect my uh, rut phase hunting locations. Now, something you mentioned at the beginning of that story intrigued me when you were talking about the fact you could, you know, you can walk through standing corn and not worry too much about spooking deer. And this is something I always like debate myself when I'm hunting a property that has standing corn. I'm always torn between should I access through the middle of the corn because of that, because I don't think, you know, you're less likely for something to see you off in the timber bedded or something. Um, or should I walk along the edge of the field where it's quieter usually because you're not hitting against all the corn stalks, but you might spook more deer that way. And then also I feel like you get so much travel along the edge of the cornfields. Uh, and I worry, am I leaving a scent trail when I'm traveling that? So is it better to access your stands right through the middle of standing corn and try to use that as a way to mask your access or is it better to be absolutely. quieter? Okay. Absolutely. You hit it right on, you hit the nail right on it. It's absolutely better to access through the corn. Anytime one piece of property that I hunted for years, uh, for the first few times to, for me to access an evening location, I'd walk down the edge of the corn, and I would always spook deer bedded in the timber to my right, you know, to the side of the corn. And when I started going, coming and entering through the corn, and, you know, through the corn, I, I could get, when I was relatively close from the tree from the tree outline in the skyline above the corn, I could tell where my tree is. So I would just move over until I, you know, once I exited the corn, I'm right there at my tree. And I love hunting transition zones from corn to timber or corn to swamp. Um, So, yes, you are absolutely 100% correct on that. Uh, You're definitely better off going through the corn. In fact, last year, um, I had a guy on SaddleHunter.com, which is a hunting talk forum. He invited me to come down in Ohio and bow hunt a 10 point that him and his buddy had been bow hunting all season and they gun hunted that buck all season and they missed him twice during gun season and they hunted invited me to come down in december and i went down there and i prepped a tree and i spooked some deer when i prepped the tree and um which i didn't like but i was i was going to hunt for five days and I had one day, the first day was set aside for scouting and prepping a couple locations. So when I went in and prepped the locations and scouted, I just figured out there's no way I'm going to be able to hunt this property in the mornings. So I immediately excluded half of my hunting time. And now you... I'm down to, when I'm down to, now I'm down to five evening hunts because the property was just net, not laid out in a, in a type of, it was just wasn't laid out where I could hunt mornings without spooking deer, okay. and I refused to do that because I know it, in this area there was considerable hunting pressure, not like Michigan, but enough to know that if I started spooking deer with my entries in the morning, you know my odds of getting shots the rest of my five days are going to be pretty slim. So I totally negated morning hunts, and I ended up killing that buck on my third evening hunt in a snowstorm on I think it was December 
13th. But what I did differently than them, the one guy was walking during season. He was walking, there was like a five or six row buffer of pine trees, and they were white pine trees, and they were mature, so they were dead underneath. The bottom six feet were dead, so you could see through them. And he was walking down the edge of those pines from a big weed field. And it kind of dropped down as soon as you left those pines down into some brush. And he was spooking deer with his entry without even, I don't even think he knew it. And so what I did is I prepped a tree. I prepped one of the pine trees coming from down over the hill where the deer were coming from their bedding area up through the pines. And there was a couple scrapes along the pines. But what I did is I walked out into the middle of the weed field. There was a little drainage ditch, and I walked that drainage ditch so I was low, and then I got out into the middle of the weed field, and I walked through the weed field, which would be the same as walking through corn, and I walked through the weed field right to the pine tree that I had prepped. So I wasn't spooking anything by walking down the edge of that field, the edge of the pines, if you're understanding what I'm saying. Mm And I got in that pine tree, and there was a blizzard that day, and I, I killed that buck on that third evening at 14 yards. Wow. He actually came out of that low spot below the pines, came up, and and was actually making fresh scrapes where he had had scrapes, you know, before it snowed, and, and then he was actually opening them back up. Well, it's amazing what a difference access can make. It's one of those details that Huge. is so, so important but gets overlooked far too often, I think. Huge, and and also when when he would when the other guy that was hunting there was when he was entering his spot, he was spooking deer with his entry, and even if it was a rainy or windy day, when he might not have spooked much with his entry, then when he exited after an evening hunt, because he was primarily an evening hunter, he would exit through the weed field or down that you know he'd walk down the edge of that weed field again. So when I exited. You know, because I hunted that the day before, and I didn't kill anything. I saw a big six-point. But when I exited, I exited down through the pines, through the bedding area. I gave it about a half hour to 45 minutes after dark before I exited. But I exited to where the deer were coming from up into the weed field. So I wasn't spooking deer with my exit or my entries. And that's a big deal. People think just because, well, I'm spooking deer, I'm done hunting. I'm spooking deer with my exit that doesn't affect anything well that's totally not correct yeah at least if you want to hunt there again right because that exactly definitely changes things yes going back to the the corn topic um i feel like so many times hunters get frustrated when they have standing corn there's you know oh you know it was bad season standing corn left up too late um how do you feel about standing corn versus, you know, I feel like in a lot of parts of the country, there's corn one year, beans one year, and it rotates on these properties. Um, when you have that rotation on a property that you're hunting near or on, how does that impact your hunting? Do you like the standing corn? Do you like the beans? Do you like it when it's cut? What are your thoughts there? I love hunting when there's standing corn. I would prefer standing corn over beans or hay or wheat any day of the week in a pressured area without a doubt. Because, because deer... You can set up in spots, you know, I always have spots set up in transition zones from the crop field where there's security cover that butts right up to a crop field and goes into the timber or whatever, you know, back into a ridge with acorns or white, you know, oak trees or whatever. And when they're standing corn, that's just a natural transition from bedding to bedding. 
you know, they've got security cover all the way. So you can actually hunt those transition spots. You can't hunt those transition spots if it's anything short crop field because a deer, mature bucks, are just not going to, in pressured areas, be exposed out in an open area during daylight hours. It just, it's just very, very rare. You know, Kansas, Iowa, yeah, they will. I've seen them walk across a grass field two inches tall in the middle of the day. But in pressured areas, that just doesn't happen on any consistent basis. So I would much, much rather hunt standing corn. And plus my, a, a lot of, like that red oak tree that I was talking about, I killed that big buck in 2015. There is no way on God's green earth I would have killed that deer if that would have been a bean field because that doe would not have ran into that bean field because there was no security cover. So corn is, to me, is a huge factor. Also, if you're setting up in trees, a lot of times you can have trees prepped along crop fields, and deer will actually transition down the edge of corn when during the rut phases, if it's still standing, which it rarely is by that time of year. But if it is, you know, they'll transition down the edge of, of standing corn, searching, you know, scent checking for does that came in and out of the corn early in the morning or came into the corn in the evening. So I think a Standing corn's a huge advantage. Most people just don't know how to react to it. And I love hunting within standing corn. A lot of times during mid-October, I'll actually hunt the corn. You know, if I want to kill a couple does or something for the freezer, I just love stalking corn. Any advice on how to pull off the cornfield stalk? Yeah, it's real simple. You uh, basically, you want to go, you know, uh, opposite the corn rows, you you kind of look at the field, you go 30, 40 yards in from the edge, and you just you just walk directly parallel, or not parallel, perpendicular to the corn rows, and you kind of get a visual. You know, some corn, there's weeds in it, some, corns are, some corn fields are real clean, but I try and move to the side however far I can see. So let's say I can see 50 yards down the corn, down the corn rows, I'll move 50 yards into the cornfield, and that's where I'll do my first walk. Once I walk down the first walk through, basically what I do and how I walk, walk the corn is I'll take my left foot, I'll put it at the base of a corn stalk, and I, have not, I do not have an arrow knock. My bow is over my shoulder. I'll put my foot on the edge of the corn stalk, and this has to be in a windy or a rainy day. can't be on a calm day. It's got to be a noisy day. I'll push the corn stalk to the side, you know, stick my head through, look both directions. If there's nothing bedded there, I'll move into that row and do the same thing in the next row. And once you do that for a while, you know, you get relatively fast at it. Once you get through the field, you move, if you can see 50 50 yards down each row or 30 yards, whatever, you double that distance. You go double that distance, and then you come back the other direction. So if you could see 50 yards, you go 100 yards down. That way you're looking at the 50 yards you didn't see and then 50 yards the other direction. And you just keep doing that, and you do it relatively slowly. But if it's the windier it is, the rainier it is, the faster you can go because the deer can't hear you. And when you see something within shooting distance, and it's not uncommon to, you know, have a doe or whatever, bedded, walk, stick your head through, and have a doe five yards away from you. (laughs) And you just back up, knock an arrow, I usually would move maybe five yards down the row so I don't have that short of a shot because you've got to step into the row so there is going to be a visual uh, issue. Step into the row and take my shot. That's going to be pretty intense. <laughs> I've shot three does in one, in one hunt. Wow. 
Yeah. I mean, and it's not a, it's not the type of deal where you're going to kill big mature bucks, but you know, typically I save filling my freezer till, you know, December, late December. Uh, but if there's corn and I need some venison, that's what I do. That's the way of doing it. And, and I have killed one nice buck in a corn doing that, but that wasn't my plan. Sounds like a, sounds like a fun it, way to go about it though. It's a riot. I love it. <laughs> it. It's a lot of fun, and it really teaches you patience. Oh, yeah. I imagine. you got to be very careful with each step, each movement, each each next process. Um, yeah, but, but you'd be surprised. When it's when it's a windy day and or raining, you can get away with a lot. And, and scent control is a big issue there, too, because if, if you don't have a good scent control, always half of the deer are going to be downwind of you. You know, if you see deer, obviously half of the field that you're looking, you're going to have deer downwind of you. Yeah, yeah, definitely got to keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, so, last... and you want to wear something beige that kind of matches the corn. So, if you do step in the row for a shot, you don't stick out like a sore thumb. And I, I actually have some old corn, corn camo. Hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I was going to go back to, uh, we were talking through some early season locations. We were talking through some mid-October locations. And in the last podcast we did together, we spent a lot of time talking about how you use primary scrape areas during the rut and pre-rut time period. We covered that really well. Um, but But from what I understand, two other general types of areas that you focus on during that rut time period are rut staging areas and then, as you mentioned briefly earlier, bedding areas. Can you elaborate on both of those, specifically what those look like, what you're looking for, and then how you hunt them? Uh, rut staging areas I've kind of abandoned. I don't hunt rut staging areas anymore. Okay. I think in my first two books I wrote that I had, I know in the first book I had a chapter on it, but I've kind of abandoned that practice because, um, you know, I just hadn't had a lot of success with it. So I, I always look at my percentages of where my best opportunities are, and it was not at staging areas. You know, a lot of hunters that hunt in lightly pressured areas, it's pretty common for deer to actually get out of a bedding area and go and move closer to a feeding zone and bed in some sort of security cover and wait for estra, you know, for does, and hopefully they get one in estrus moving through that zone. Um, and that's a still, they'll actually stage there in the evening or else they'll stage there in the morning and wait for those to come back in, you know, after daylight. But I just haven't had a lot of success in Michigan doing that. So I, I, I kind of abandoned that. Okay. Interesting. And what was the other one? Bedding areas. Uh, and what did you want to know about that? Well, so just, I'd be interested in hearing about how, you know, we talked about it briefly, but when it comes to hunting bedding areas during the rut, um, you mentioned, kind of alluded to, that you're going right into the middle of them um, for yep. some of these hunts rather than on the edge. But can you kind of expand on that? You know, oh, what okay. are the types of bedding areas you're looking for during the rut? You know, how are you at? What are you thinking about when you're setting up there, et cetera, et cetera? Okay. Well, obviously, as I've mentioned, uh, I only set up in bedding areas during post season. So, you know, they I, I totally scrutinize all the bedding areas on the property I'm hunting during post season. And um, I, I'll, it's pretty rare that I don't set up a location or two in, in each bedding area. And what I'm typically looking for is an open area. You know, a lot of people think when I'm talking about a bedding area, it's all dense. Everything's dense. That's not the case. 
anytime you go in a bedding area, there's going to be open areas. There's going to be convergence points. There's going to be little openings where there's three or four runways coming through. There might even be a lost apple tree in the bedding area. There may be a couple of oak trees. Uh, there may be those pricker bushes that have that real light green leaves, and that's a preferred browse for deer that are in bedding areas. You know, a lot of times it's 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 advantageous to know what deer prefer to browse on if there are no master fruit trees or crop crops in the area. And um, you know, the, those little pricker bushes with those nice green leaves, deer love eating on those. So that's what I kind of key on and and once in a blue moon not very often but if you find an opening in a in a bedding area a lot of times there'll be occasionally there'll be some scrape areas and obviously i key on scrape areas 50 percent of the bucks that i've killed over the last 30 years have been at primary scrape areas you know it might have been at an apple tree but it's got a primary scrape area at it It might have been in a white oak but it's got a primary scrape area at it it might have been in a funnel transition zone between two bedding areas or bedding in a feeding area, but because it's a pinch point and there's a lot of doe traffic there, there's a scrape area there. Scrape areas are always located where there's a lot of doe activity. So 50% plus of my bucks have been killed at scrape areas. So a lot of times you might find a scrape area within a bedding area because there's a lot of does in the bedding area. And if they're if they have a convergence point in an opening or at a feeding location, there could be a scrape area. So that's kind of what I key on. I, I still key on the same thing. I key on a destination spot, hopefully a feeding spot within the bedding area. Because a, a mature buck in pressured areas, typically, even during the rough phases, he'll come into his bedding area prior to daybreak. So I'm usually in them and set up an hour and a half before daylight. Uh, so he comes in before daylight, and once he's in his secure bedding area, he's pretty. he feels pretty comfortable. So, you know, he's going to move around, he's going to browse, he's going to do whatever. He may even, it's possible he might even bed down before daylight. But then midday, during the rut phases, and that's the only time I hunt there, he's going to get up and he's going to start scent checking that bedding area for possible estrus does. And if he doesn't find anything in that particular bedding area, and there's another bedding area within his core zone, and it has adequate transition security cover from this bedding area to that one he's going to take that route and go check that one as well and if there's a third or a fourth he'll do that as well so bedding areas are just key locations to hunt during the rut phases and and it as always i try to set up in a destination spot but if i can't find a apple or some sort of a food source i'll try and find wherever i can find the most convergence of runways or sign within the bedding area a lot of times if a buck a mature buck is bedding in a bedding area and you're scouting it during postseason i've seen it many many times where there will be a cluster of rubs in a real small zone which means he's bedding that's his bedding spot he's bedding within 15 yards of these rubs and I've seen it where a buck will be bedded right in a little cluster of like small pines or spruce trees, and all the trees around him are just shredded to shredded to pieces. And obviously, I bolted him out of there, whatever time of season that I, you know, postseason I did. But it's six months before I'm going to hunt him, so it's not a big deal. He's going to definitely be back in that spot. Now, when you're when you're hunting these bedding areas during the rut phases. Are you specifically trying to hunt close to that buck bedding area, or do you focus on the doe bedding areas because that's where these bucks are all coming to to look for the the females? I focus on the I focus on where doe traffic is. 
always. Okay. All buck activity during the rough phases revolves revolves around doe activity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah. Now, I think I think most hunters know what we're talking about when we're talking about finding these bedding areas. But can you just just in case someone is still at that point in their hunting fate or journey where they're trying to figure, okay, where the heck are these deer bedded? You know, in a high pressure state like Michigan or Pennsylvania, where do you typically see these deer bedded? I've got the perfect answer for you, Mark, and this is really simple. And I say this at my seminars all the time. When you're scouting a property, depending on the hunting pressure in the area, you have to pretend every single person is trying to kill you. Okay? Everybody's trying to kill me. Where on this property, of all the places I can look, might I possibly feel comfortable standing up and moving during daylight hours? That's what you have to look at. Everybody's trying to kill me. That's going to be a bedding area. Fair enough. The most bedding areas are going to be the typically the best available security cover available on the property. That makes sense. It doesn't have to be silverite, but it's got to be dense enough where most humans do not want to go there. That's why they are comfortable being in there. That's where people. That's where the hunters push the deer to during pre-season scouting ventures and early season hunting. That's where the deer are pushed to. Not only mature bucks, but mature does as well. Because typically, if you're hunting in a pressured area, there's a lot of hunters that are targeting does. They're targeting everything. You know, it's unlike managed property where they're only targeting mature bucks. Uh, Typically, in pressured areas, a lot of the hunters are targeting any legal antlered buck, and a lot of them are targeting does Mm -hmm. during any time of the season. So. Yeah. You got to pretend everybody's trying to kill you, and where's the places on this property where I might feel comfortable getting up and moving during daylight hours? That's the easiest way to put it. That's a helpful exercise. I definitely think that's a that's a good way to think about it when trying to figure this out for yourself. Yeah, yeah, because it, it takes everything down to its simplest point, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's continue. We we talked early, mid rut time period uh, that's important timing right figuring out where to hunt at the right time of year but i also know other factors um, at least in my hunting are really important as to when i go into the, some of these spots i've prepared um, we've talked in the past about the fact that you like hunting in precipitation rain and snow um, but we didn't really get to a couple other factors like cold fronts or barometric pressure, or the moon, some of these other things that other hunters talk about, do any of those things factor into when or how often you hunt? No, not at all. Uh, nope. Uh, I pay zero attention to moon phase. When I have a day off to hunt, and I feel the circumstances are right, and it's the right seasonal time of season, and it's the right time of day for that particular location, I go hunt it. Um Back in the 60s, when I was in high school, I used to go shining a lot. And it was very common back then. You don't see it much anymore. But, I mean, it was not uncommon to see three people shining the same field back then. And and it was, there was one thing that I always paid attention to. I always paid attention to weather conditions. If it was a rainy night, I saw a lot more deer activity, and I saw a lot more buck activity. If it was a full moon, I saw very minimal buck activity. I'd see doe activity, but I wouldn't see bucks out at night. Um, at least not any two and a half year old. Back then, you, two and a halfs were about as good as it, good as it 
got. So uh, you wouldn't see any two-and-a-half-year-old bucks. But if it was a full moon and it was overcast or it was raining at night, I would see the deer. So it wasn't necessarily the full moon phase that stopped them from moving, being out there at night after dark. It was just that it was so bright out. So I think the full moon thing is not that big a deal. It may affect when the actual rut phase is. That I do not know, and neither does anybody else. But during a, when there is a full moon, I have found, and, there, and there's no cloud cover, I have found the next day, during the day, midday, to be a really good time to hunt because the nighttime movements were very minimal. The next day, daytime movements are a little bit stronger than normal during the rut phases. Okay. And I'm not talking about early season or, you know, October low. I'm talking about rut phase. The During the rut phases, the daytime activity was a lot better, especially during midday. And that was, I, I want to make sure I didn't miss it, that was the day after full moon? Yes, that, was, that would be the day after there was a, a full moon that night, the previous night with no cloud cover. Okay. And as far as windy, rainy, unless there's a tornado, if I've got the day off, I'm hunting. I've killed deer in 35-mile-an-hour winds when it was probably a wind chill of 30 below zero. I've hunted, I've killed deer in rainy conditions. My preference is a drizzly day, just a nice, steady drizzle. You don't see as many deer, but bucks tend to move better in that type of weather. Uh, yes, I see more does and, and subordinate bucks on nice bluebird days. But as far as seeing mature bucks, I definitely see more mature bucks in inclement weather than I do in nice sunny day weathers. Because if it's sunny and it's calm out, a mature buck, and you know this, Mark, as well as anybody, mm-hmm. every time a mature buck takes a step, they crunch leaves and they stand there and wait for a reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And when it's raining and the ground's wet or it's windy and, and they're not concerned about their noise, uh, they, they move steadily through the woods. They, yeah. don't, they don't stop and wait for a reaction to every step they take. Yeah, I've definitely seen the same thing. It's uh, those kind of nasty days, like you said, those drizzles, cool, drizzly, or some rain coming on in and out. Those almost always are the days I'm seeing a mature buck. If I'm going to see a mature buck during the year, eight times out of ten, it's probably going to be yep. a day like that. Yep. But the, um, one, I got to tell you this one. I may have mentioned it on the last podcast. I don't know. But I was hunting in Illinois on state land with a 40-pound bow because I messed up my shoulder that year. And this was in December, so it was late season, after gun season. And... Um, it was this was that 35 mile an hour wind day it was seven degrees when I left the hotel, and that was without a wind chill. 35 mile an hour winds. I was so cold. I had on <laughs> so many clothes. I had on five body warmers, and about a half hour before dark, I hadn't seen a thing. And I'm sitting in a big oak tree next to a locust tree. Seven, seven, 17 yards from me is a locust tree with those big long beans. And I almost got out of the tree and went back to the hotel. But I sat there and I thought to myself, you know what? I know I'm not going to kill anything in the hotel. I've only got a half hour to 45 minutes left to sit here and suffer. 
So I'm just going to sit here and suffer. I saw five bucks in that last half hour. Jeez. And one of them was a 12-point, and I killed him, and he was a monster 12-point, just perfect 12-point. Makes it all worth it. Oh, <laughs> I, you got that right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a, a, a well-earned reward, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the guy that I was hunting with, I was actually hunting with a guy. I took a guy down there with me, which was kind of rare, and he was... He couldn't believe we were even hunting in that weather. He's like, you're nuts. <laughs> I think a lot I said, of people Well, I'm say going. That. You don't have to go. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. Well, all, all things being equal, let's take let's take weather out of it. Let's take precipitation, all that kind of stuff out of it. Um, if you had to just pick, let's say, three days during the season, if you had to pick the three very best days of the season, you had to be in a tree, what would those three days be? Halloween, which I believe is the beginning of Typically, you know, weather-based, of course, uh, beginning of pre-rut. I'm a big pre-rut guy because deer, mature bucks have a routine during pre-rut. Once, once the peak rut starts and all the mature, all the most of the does start coming into heat, all the routines go out the window. They're chasing does on, you know, routines. The there are no routines. So I'd say Halloween uh, through the 5th of November. That, those are my favorite times. And, uh, and opening day. I love opening day because mm-hmm. I look forward to it so much. Okay. Speaking of those routines, um, do you – I've heard a couple – I think if I, as I'm thinking back through some stories and stuff, I feel like I've heard a couple examples where you've talked about you know zeroing in a little bit on a specific deer. But how often do you actually pattern a specific deer over the course of a season or a few hunts? Um, is that a big part of what you're doing, or are you, are you jumping from place to place? And, you know, if he's showing up, it's going to be that one day and you kill him. I rarely pattern deer. I rarely look for deer. I rarely put out motion cameras uh, to see what's there. Um, I'm hunting destination locations where there's doe traffic, and I know if there's doe traffic, the best bucks in the area are going to come through there. So I'm I'm specifically targeting destination locations and sign. That's what I do. Now, when I go out west, when I go to Kansas or Iowa, I hunt my cameras. I, hunt, I hang cameras at every location, and I totally hunt my cameras because I can check them every day, and the deer, I hate to use the word stupid, but it, it, they don't care. I can go in and intrude my spots, and it doesn't seem to make any difference on the deer activity in, in, in pressure areas. That's just not the case. Yeah. So. So out there, I totally hunt my cameras on what I'm seeing on my cameras. And in Michigan, I'm totally hunting destination spots. Okay. I'm hunting destination spots out there, too. I'm hunting primary scrape areas for the most part or rub lines or something or pinch points and draws. But um, in Michigan, it's it's totally 100% destination areas. Okay. Michigan, then. Last year, uh-huh. um, if I'm if I heard you correctly, a little bit earlier before we start recording, you mentioned that you killed two bucks last year in Michigan with your bow. One I think you mentioned was late October. One was like the second week of November. Could you tell us the story of both of those hunts? How specifically sure. those came together? Why you were successful on those those hunts? Well, the the one was a ten point, and that was on Halloween. I just mentioned Halloween a minute ago. Uh, it was on Halloween evening, and I had seen this buck in a different part of the property. It's a 37-acre parcel. I'd seen him over on the other side of the property. Oh, God, second or third day of season, walking along the edge of a standing cornfield. So um, 
this once. Remember me telling you about the apple tree a while ago, mm-hmm. where I've got it cleaned out through the to the opposite side. Yeah. Okay. Halloween night, my first sit at this tree. I'm sitting in this red oak next to this apple tree, and just like I said, he came out through the heavy cover on the opposite side of the tree. He fed on the opposite side of the tree for maybe three minutes, ate three or four apples, turned around and went right back the way he came from. And because he was always facing me, I did not get a shot. He never turned broadside. So and that was that was probably an hour and a half before before dark. And uh, just about the time I was getting ready to think about getting out of the tree, I heard a doe coming and coming down through the swamp. She ran right through the opening. Remember me saying on the, the side of the tree that I'm on, the, the apple tree on my side was open, mm-hmm. and it kind of was a little downhill slide, but it was wide open. She ran right through there, right through that opening. And it wasn't 20 seconds later, I heard a grunting. And, you know, I didn't know it was going to be that deer, but obviously I got ready, and it was that, that 10 point, and I shot him. Wow. Um, he was going, he, he was following exactly, obviously, <laughs> nose to the ground following her, mm-hmm. and I came to full draw, and I made a man, and he stopped, and I shot him. And then the second one was on a two-acre parcel that I'd just gotten permission from, and it just happened to be a spot where there was, it was the headlands of a big cattail marsh. And um, I prepped a tree there, and there was some rubs and stuff in that area. Prior, just prior to season, when I went and speed toured it, and I uh, sat in that tree. First time I sat in that tree, it was I think it was November 10th or 11th, and it was pretty late. It was like a quarter to ten, maybe. You know, I'd seen two little bucks going to the cattail marsh, and about a quarter to ten, uh, out of that cattail marsh came this 11 point, and I I did not know he was in the area at all. I, never seen him and he was chasing some does around and i shot him at about uh, i don't know 12 12 yards maybe and he ended up i shot him a little too far back and he ended up dying in some uh in a little pond uh anytime you hit a deer i hit him in the liver and anytime you hit a deer too far back they i gave him a lot of time and he ended up dying in that pond because they like to that soothes their wound i think mm-hmm. the cool water why do you think, or why? I'm, I'm curious why you set up there. You mentioned it was near Cattail Marsh, and you saw some rubs. Um, was that was it just that that made you set up there, or did you did you think there was some bedding in the marsh? Or can you elaborate a little bit on specifically why you well, prepped that tree where you did? Yeah, anytime anytime you have a dry marsh, Cattail Marsh, deer are going to bed in it. Yeah, if you're in a pressured area and there's a dry Cattail Marsh, deer are going to bed in it. So I knew there was going to be deer bedding in it, and there was some timber that butted up to this cattail marsh right on the corner of this little two-acre parcel. So uh, I went in and I, I set up a tree post-season, and I didn't hunt it until November. And I, I did hunt it one other time in November, and I did not see him. I think I saw a little eight-pointer and a four-point. But then the second time I went back and it, for the morning hunt, and it's primarily a morning spot, um, and I was in there probably two hours before daylight. He came through at a quarter, quarter to 10, 9.30, 10 o'clock. Wow. Now, I'm making an assumption here, but I feel like if I'm like making an assumption about the average deer hunter, and maybe if I'm, 
and basing that on maybe what I used to do 10 years ago or something would be, you know, I've got my one property I hunt and maybe I've got my best stand or my best two stands. And so when it gets to that rut, it's the first week of November or something, I'm going to be sitting there over and over and over again, because that's where I think all these deer are going to be. Um, when I hear you talk about the way you're hunting and I've, I read your things, it sounds to me like you are bouncing from place to place often. Um, and that you're not hunting the same place over and over and over again. Is that accurate? I mean, even during the rut, it sounds like you're on this property for a hunt or two and then over on this stand farther away or that property. Um, is that accurate? Or That's correct very me? accurate. That's very accurate, but I have to put a disclaimer in there because if I'm hunting at, let's say, an apple tree that's been dropping apples for a few weeks and it's got, you know, there's three or four scrapes there, it's a primary scrape, and I hunt it, you know, two, let's say I go in there in November and I hunt it and I see three or four does and some, some fawns and a subordinate buck, uh, and I didn't spook anything because of my entry and exit routes, I didn't spook anything, I'll hunt it again. Then the very next hunt, I'll hunt that spot again. If it's a morning spot, I'll hunt it the next morning. If it's a morning and an evening spot, I'll come back and hunt it that evening. And as long as I'm not seeing a difference in my visual deer sightings and the activity remains the same, I will continue to hunt that spot. As soon as I see where my intrusions are affecting the doe traffic at that spot, I'll go hunt someplace else and put that one off for a week. So it totally is depending upon my visual sightings and the active, you know, the, or the scrapes being actively hit, you know, at night because... You know, he may be with a doe. The buck that I'm pursuing may be with a doe during her 28 to 32 hour cycle. So, you know, my timing may be off. You know, just because you hunt a spot doesn't mean he's going to come through there that time. He may mm -hmm. be doing something else someplace else. So, as long as you're not interrupting the activity, it's okay to hunt a spot three or four times in a row. And, you know, because then there's a good chance he's going to come through one of those times because if he was with a hot doe, she's going to be out of her cycle and then he may be searching for the next one and come and check out that scrape area in doing so. Yeah. yeah to your point, so it though, totally I feel like depends it's... on the situation, but yeah. yes, I do like to bounce around a lot so that I'm not, you know, even though I'm not worried about my scent, you're still making a, a visual or not a visual, but you're still making an intrusion. You know, you may be spooking something with an entry or whether your exit, I try not to, but as you well know, that's impossible not to do all the time. Yeah. So, Stuff happens, that's for sure. Yes, absolutely. I'm kind of curious. Um, I want to I want to shift a little bit um, for just a moment here before we wrap this up, since I've kept you a pretty long time here. But you did mention, um, you know, the fact that you are hunting differently when you head to, you know, farther west, some of these other states like Kansas or Iowa or whatnot. Um, can you give us like a the Eberhart way one on one on pulling off these DIY hunts to the the less pressured Midwest? You know how you pull off these week long hunts. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I do not go out and pre-scout. Uh, I've been hunting in Kansas now. I've got two or three farms, the free permission farms. Again, I've never paid on any place in my life. Um, and I, so I kind of know the locations already. I know the areas, and primarily in Kansas, it's a lot of draws. You know, 95% of the property out there is in crops or weed fields or CPR, and there's not a lot of timber, and that's what I love. You know, so anytime you see a draw, there may be a draw every half a mile or three quarters of a mile. 
and it just kind of meanders through the sections. And those draws have pinch points, and they have scrapes. That's basically during the daylight hours, you know, the deer are kind of, they're not up on the flats in the crops. They're down in those draws. That's where they bed because there's a lot of weeds. It's more moist down there. It's more fertile. And that's where the deer bed, and that's where they transition through. So it's very simple. You just kind of walk, meander through those draws on your first day there. Please scouting and prepping locations, and you prepare whatever locations in the tightest pinch points possible, and you just put up a camera and hunt them accordingly. And typically, will always, out there there's always scrapes and rubs, always. There's so many mature bucks, there's always scrapes and rubs. So it's just getting access to some decent properties, walk-on properties or whatever, blowing off your first day, even day and a half. That's one mistake a lot of people make is they go out there and they feel like, oh, my God, I've got to hunt this evening. No, don't worry about this evening. Don't stress out. Totally spend the first day scouting and prepping locations and then hunt according to what you visually see on the locations you prepped. I usually will set up, blow off the first day and a half, set up the nine or ten, eleven locations, put cameras at each, and then hunt according to what I see in the cameras. Can you elaborate on the camera strategy? Are you, you know, are you putting these actually at the tree stand location, and yes. how often are you checking those to make decisions? We are putting them, and when I say we, my son John and uh, another friend of mine go out, have been going out there the last few years, and we put them at the actual hunting location. Correct, right? We have them targeted right at either the runways in the tightest part of the funnel or at the scrape areas themselves. And then we will visit those cameras every day. And it's not uncommon for us to drive to those cameras, which you would never do in Michigan. And we will check the cameras. And we might even spook deer when we're driving or walking and checking cameras. And it just doesn't seem to matter because they, the rut out there, because there's so many mature bucks and the buck to doe ratio, mature buck to mature doe ratio is so close to being even. The rut is so competitive, it just doesn't seem to make any difference. You know, you get in a pressured area, there's so few mature bucks and, and the rut is not that competitive for the dominant bucks because they just don't have much competition. Out there, there's a ton of competition and even if you bolt the deer up, they they still continue to move, you know, the next day or the even that evening through that right. same area. And at that time of year, too, a lot of the activity, you could have a buck coming through that was half a mile or a mile away yesterday when you checked the cameras. Now when he comes through, he has no idea what was going on there yesterday, right? A lot of activity. Yeah, and that's, that's a very good point, Mark, because it is very common out there for us to put up a camera and get, the same buck on cameras two and a half miles apart in one day. Wow. Because the draws, you know, up in the crop fields, up in the flats, you know, once the deer all converge down into the draws during the daytime, which is 5% five, 5 of the landscape at best, they travel a long ways through those draws. Those draws run for miles. And so it's not uncommon whatsoever to get pictures of the same buck, you know, a couple miles apart. Yeah, it's pretty incredible how much it's, they it's move. It's different. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's refreshing, let me put it that way, because it's so <laughs> easy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do enjoy any trip to somewhere different than Michigan just because, you know, it, it is very different, and and the just the 
if nothing else was different, just the number of mature bucks, the the, yeah. the the target, the pool of potential targets is so much larger that you just see different behavior and it's just a lot of fun. I always encourage anyone, if you hunt in a state like Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York or the Northeast or somewhere like that, it's worth saving up some money and time to, to do a trip like this to experience it because it's just fun. It's different and it's a lot of fun. It's like being single and going into a bar you're the first guy in a bar after the chippendales performed and it's nothing but women in there and they're all crazy <laughs> i think i think you just got a lot of guys to buy a plane ticket out to uh, kansas or iowa now after that analogy <laughs> well that's a good analogy is that it's, it's, it's it just oh, makes things funny. easier very true very true <laughs> all right so john this is uh as I knew it would be, this has been really interesting. I, I want to ask one final question, sure. and that is of, of everything we've talked about or maybe things we haven't talked about, if there was like one thing that you could get the average hunter to change or if there was just one parting word of wisdom or maybe it's the one thing that you see that separates the average hunter from the best hunters you know, what's that one thing you want everyone to walk away from this conversation with and, and take action on? That is really easy. Scent control, period, end of discussion. If you can control your scent where you don't have to pay attention to the wind, that makes a monstrous difference, and it can be done. Most people think it's a scam. That is absolutely not true. It is not a scam. It can be done. I do it all the time. I do not pay attention to wind, and that makes hunting so much easier. I, every time you say that, it kind of blows my mind a little bit. It's hard to believe that, but I will take your word for it, John. I, I know and my that, workshops, yeah, yeah. my workshops, both on the infield day and on the seminar day, I'm going to go over scent control with a fine tooth comb. I think uh, I, 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 I do not disagree with you at all on the fact that everything you possibly can do to manage that scent control, just like anything, I think if we like maybe the moral of, of a lot of what we talked about here is that the details matter, right? It's, it's paying attention Absolutely. to the little things. It's being attentive to all, every little piece of the puzzle matters and scent controls is a very important piece of that. And if you can push the odds, it's a little bit more in your favor with that. That's going to, you know, what blows me away, Mark, you know, I watch the TV shows, even the guys being sponsored by Sunlock. They got beards, exposed faces, exposed necks. They wear a logo cap with their hair hanging out. You know, any one of those things. They wear face paint to look cool. Any one of those things totally negates everything else you've done on the Scentlock side. You hmm. can be wearing a perfectly pristine Scentlock jacket and pants, rubber boots. You can have a Scentlock backpack. And if you've got any one of those other flaws, you better pay attention to the wind or you're going to get busted. Or you may have 100% scent control regimen. You're wearing the proper headgear with drop-down face mask. You've got your mouth covered, your neck's covered, everything's covered, your boots. And yet you go out there with a backpack that you've never washed. You get into it with your bare hands every day, so you've got this huge human scent wick in the tree with you. And then if you get winded, you blame it on your scent lock suit. When in reality, it's your backpack. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, all of, it's all a matter of degree. If you don't do it 100% correctly, you better pay attention to the wind. And if you get busted because you didn't do it correctly, don't blame it on a suit. Blame it on yourself. It's your fault. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of, again, the little things. Even your, your bow release or your pull rope 
Uh, anything yeah. like that could, could hold scent. So <laughs> I've been busted years ago because of my bow rope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, that's a great point. Well, John, if people want to check out these workshops, or if they want to pick up your books or your DVDs, can you just remind us again what that website was that we should that we can go to? Yes, you can Google my name, John Eberharten, and I'm sure it'll pop up. Or uh, the easiest one would be www.deer dash the little hyphen j-o-h-n dot net perfect dear john dear hyphen john dot net or you can you you can be you can call me on my phone number at 989-644-6067 i'd be more than happy to talk to you about it that's a dangerous move you did there, John. That's <laughs> I'm, I don't I'm, care. I'm impressed that you're willing to share the phone number. That's good. Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, cool. that's fine. That's awesome. Well, John, I can't thank you enough. Um, this is always an interesting chat with you, and this definitely lived up to that. So I appreciate it. And good job, uh, Mark. I hope you have another great season this year. Good hunting to everybody out there. Absolutely. And that is going to be it. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. And like I said in the intro, take a listen after this to the Mark Drury episode I mentioned. Obviously, these two guys hunt very differently and are in very different places and circumstances, but it offers an interesting study in contrast and uh, a good example for us to look at. And I just think it's good stuff all across the board. We can learn different things from each, and, and I think that's pretty cool. So... I also want to remind you all that I will be at the 2017 Quality Deer Management Association National Convention later this month, and I really, really would like to see a bunch of you there. I'm speaking and recording a live podcast on July 21st, and we're going to be doing some live Q&A from audience members, so it would be super cool if some of you were there to ask your questions and to be in the podcast. So head over to qdma.com as soon as possible to learn more and to register for the event. Again, that's July 21st. It's down in New Orleans. It's going to be a good time. We'd love to see you there. And finally, I want to offer a big thank you to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And of course, thank you to all of you listening. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your support. Hope you enjoyed this one. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.